Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Cloud Atlas. Sebastian and I am here with Troy. Hello. And Rodney. Hello. Welcome uh or thanks for having me back and welcome. <laughs> yeah, this is a new combo, Troy and Rodney. We just realized while we started recording that we hadn't done this before, so this should be an exciting battle of the minds. Nice to meet you, Rodney. Nice to meet you, Troy. It's a it's a pleasure to finally get to chat slash argue with you, depending how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> now, Rodney is the co-host of the Pod Forsaken podcast, and whenever he comes on, we like to have him give a recommendation for a little scene horror movie for our listeners to check out. What is it this time, Rodney? Oh, man, I didn't actually... You would think I would know to have one... Uh... Was it Sleepaway Camp? Have you heard of <laughs> Sleepaway Camp? This was, this was great. You know, it's not a movie. I'm going to tell you about a thing that I love and I think more people should watch. And it's the show Slasher. Cool. It's on Shudder, all four seasons. Slasher is like a, do you guys know this show? I'm aware of it. I haven't watched it yet. Though. I think I've told you about it 30 times now, Sebastian. <laughs> it's like, Troy, do you know it? Do you know Slasher? I've heard of it. I meant to watch it. I haven't gotten around to it yet. It, each season is like a standalone anthology story, right? So you can just watch. I suggest starting with season two. Season one's eh. It's like imagine Scream stretched out to nine hours, right? It's just like. A bunch of people, they get killed. A bunch of people get killed per episode and you whittle down and you play a game of like, who's actually the killer? You know, they always like have a mask. But I'm going to give it some of the credit for the most gory kills you will ever see in a TV show. Cool. Like I, I have seen so many disgusting things at this point. And yet there are episodes of Slasher where I sit there and I'm like, that's so wrong. That is, that is a little <laughs> offensive to me. Having said that, it's sloppy at times in the writing. You know, like someone sees someone get chopped up and then they're like, I'm going to go have a cigarette out back, right? And you're like, why are you yeah. doing that? <laughs> the show is like that nonstop. You kind of just have to, you're there for one thing. But it sounds like it delivers on that one thing. If, if you want that one thing, if you want like, like a really gnarly Agatha Christie R-rated slasher experience, that's how I would paint it. You know who will probably love this is our co-host and my wife, Jen, because this sounds right up her alley. I think Jen would dig it. You can just jump right into season two. Yep. It's just a, each one's a standalone story. They, you know, they have nothing to do with each other. I would say get halfway through the first episode of season two. And there's a scene in a, in a sauna. And if at the end of the sauna scene, you aren't enjoying it, this show isn't for you. Okay. 
That's I'm talking like that's like a 25 minute commitment before you know. All right. That sounds fair. But we're not here to talk about the show Slasher today. We're here to talk about the film Cloud Atlas, which kicks off our month of the Wachowskis. Uh, my plan for December to celebrate the upcoming Matrix Resurrections film from Lana Wachowski was to talk about all the Wachowski movies that have bombed terribly because... <laughs> There's a bunch. The Wachowskis <laughs> rose to fame as the directors of The Matrix. They were directors and writers from Chicago. They wrote and directed Bound, which is a good indie movie. And then their sophomore movie, as everybody knows, was The Matrix and was a huge hit. Then they did some Matrix sequels that had diminishing returns, both in terms of box office and critical reception. And then after that, it's just kind of been one string of bombs after another. I think the most successful thing they've done post-Matrix is produce the movie V for Vendetta. That was actually um, a mild minor hit. Didn't they write it? I think they wrote it too, right? Yeah, they wrote and produced it. They were basically on set all the time. They just didn't physically direct it themselves. Their second unit guy, James Teague, did it. But pretty much everything they've directed then has been a resounding failure, at least in terms of box office. They did that show Sense8, which got canceled on Netflix, so you could probably chalk that up to being something of a failure too, but they still have an incredible uh, fan base and people are still pretty excited every time one of their projects comes to fruition. We should say that both Lily and Lana have uh, transitioned. Lana transitioned a little over 10 years ago and Lily transitioned more recently. Uh, we will refer to them as Lily and Lana, as that is the names that they go by. How do you guys feel about the Wachowskis? Troy, are you a fan? As far as the Matrix, definitely. Uh, the cultural impact that the Matrix had is uh, pretty well known. And uh, as far as action directors, uh, hands down, they know what they're doing. But yeah, uh, kind of uh, <laughs> what you just laid out. I've, I know their work, but I have not seen everything just because all my friends said, don't bother. I have seen Cloud Atlas. And as we will get into it, I don't remember seeing it. I think I blocked it out. And then you, Sebastian, made me watch the rest of the Matrix sequels, which I probably wouldn't have done on my own, but very entertaining. We watched them on 4K, at least, when I oh, got the did. 4K set. That's that was right. fun. On your kick-ass home theater. Rodney, I believe you are a fan of the Wachowskis. Am I correct? Yeah, I think that's that's a fair way to put that. I, I've seen everything they've done except Sense8. For whatever reason, I just haven't made the time to watch that yet. I actually tried Sense8. I tried because there was a kind of a big fan base for that. Everybody, that was a, yeah. there was a lot of buzz about that when it came out. Couldn't continue with it. I couldn't either. I think I watched two or three episodes and was like, nope. Yep. I, I've heard mixed things. It's always on my like maybe one day list, right? But n very few people have told me how badly I need to watch it. As far as Wachowskis go, whenever a new Wachowski movie comes out, I am there. I don't care what it's about. I will be there and watch it. That doesn't mean I like them all. I'm pretty much exactly in the same boat as you. I was blown away by The Matrix just like everyone else. And then when the sequels came around, I was really excited for them, actually. By the time the sequels happened, I was even more of a fan than when I was when I initially saw it. And I actually really liked Matrix Reloaded. I thought there were problems and it was bloated and stuff. 
But then I really didn't like Matrix Revolutions, and uh, Rodney will be joining me to discuss that later in the month. So that kind of soured me on them, and then Speed Racer I didn't like at all, and then this came out and I didn't like it at all, and then Jupiter (laughs) Ascending came out and I didn't like it at all. And each time I would be excited to see them, I'm like, well, okay, I'm going to give them another chance. And every time I found myself not really liking the movie. However, because I really am a fan of them just in terms of their artistic acumen and the fact that they take these big swings, I will go back and revisit the movies. I know Rodney will make fun of me as this is my strategy for a lot of questionable material, but I do (laughs) feel that in the case of the Wachowskis, you actually will be rewarded for revisiting their movies when you do not necessarily love them to begin with because they're smart people and there are things in their movies that are intelligent and artistic, even if you're not initially sort of taken by it. Yeah. Everyone knows if you hate something, you should just consume it over and over and over until you start to like it. Well, I got to say, in the case of this movie, though, that's a really tall order. Yeah, I was I, I was just trying to swallow what you were saying there. And I was going to say that does that include Cloud Atlas? It does not, because Cloud <laughs> Atlas is a three hour movie. I really didn't like it to begin with, whereas something like Jupiter Ascending, I just thought was kind of ridiculous garbage. It's easier for me to watch ridiculous garbage than something that I feel is sort of pretentious and ponderous, which was my initial reaction to this movie. This is the third time I watched it, and I will say that I get a little bit more out of it every time I watch it, and I like it a little bit more every time. Now, we should say that this was co-directed by the German director Tom Teichwer, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name. I'm sure I'm butchering it. Or I think that was right. Tech word. He directed Run Lola Run. So he sort of had a reputation of his own and they collaborated on this because they were both big fans of the 2004 novel by uh, David Mitchell. Um, are either you guys at all familiar with the novel? I know it exists. I've read it. Oh, you've oh. read it. Yeah, I've read it. Yeah. And I've read a, a, the other book he wrote the bone clocks which i thought was uh much better did you read the novel before or after seeing the movie after so okay let me let me start off with um the, the first time i saw the movie i saw the movie and then like i said i i kind of it would like went in and out of my head i could not remember it and then my brother-in-law kept telling me how good the book was i sort of put it off and then i read the bone clocks and and loved the bone clocks and then finally got around to cloud atlas but i, I have to admit i kind of struggled with Cloud Atlas, the book. It's pretty dense and and extremely subtle as far as it's what it's how it's trying to connect everything. Like if you blink, you will miss some of the little Easter eggs and, and the way it's tying all these things together. But it's an interesting book. Did reading the book help you appreciate the movie more or less? <laughs> I just watched the movie again uh, the other day and hated it even more. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. The, the movie. <laughs> Reading the book and and then watching the movie, if you kind of bounce around between them, you might understand each one a little bit better. The thing about the book is that it's it's it begins at the first story yeah. in the uh, with the abolitionist, right? Yeah. And it and then it just moves forward, and then it goes all the way to the story of Zachary, and that's in the middle of the book, and then it goes 
backwards back again all the way back to the beginning so it just goes forward and back it's not broken up like the movie yes. is where it's which constantly cutting all through all these stories all the time i knew that yeah so i mean obviously it's already a pretty you know complicated source material so we've got two sets of directors basically working on this complicated novel and then adding a whole other complication to this was the sort of race bending controversy like before the movie came out production stills got out and there were pictures of some of the you know white actors in like yellow face as they call it or whatever the asian makeup and stuff and so people were taking issue with that so that was sort of a thing that was kind of put a little bit of a dark cloud on the movie before it came out i remember People being like, oh, I don't know about this. But I also remember before it came out, there was a real groundswell of support from fans of the Wachowskis. And I, and I knew a lot of those people, you know, on what would be called film Twitter now, like uh, my Internet friends who are into movies. There was a lot of support for them there. And by the time this movie came out, I was kind of like, fuck this movie, because I just have this sort of contrarian <laughs> attitude. And it looked kind of shitty to me and it looked pretentious. So I have to admit, I had a bias sort of against it coming in. It's hard to remember exactly how I felt. I knew it was coming out because I was excited to go see it. And I, I do vaguely remember some people talking about the, however we want to call it, the yellow face or, you know, people playing cultural appropriation or whatever. But when people say things like that, that just makes me want to go see a movie more anyway, just so I can argue <laughs> about it. And here I am getting to finally argue about it. Although I've gotten to argue about it for like 10 years with my wife. So <laughs> who only actually watched it the other night with me for the first time. Was she arguing against it or for it? Against the cultural appropriation. Gotcha. And to be clear, I'm not arguing for it. I just have a different opinion. You on like it. to appropriate other cultures. You're, <laughs> you're cool with it. I wish more movies did it more. I'd like to see everyone playing <laughs> everyone different. Let's just dive into this, though. You want to talk about it? Well, no, the, just the makeup in general. The makeup's, the makeup's bad. I remember when this movie first started coming out, and, I, and I, there was some press conference or something with, I, I think it was uh, Lana, and... She she was up there and she was delivering that that uh, speech about what is our our lives are not our own. And I was like, really t actually moved by it. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, that's that's really cool. That's really sweet. I totally want to see this movie. And I thought it was going to be this kind of cathartic, spiritual, dense movie. And I got in there and pretty much as soon as I saw like uh, Tom Hanks with a giant prosthetic nose, I, I realized like I was seeing a not funny coming to America with just <laughs> actors playing 10 different roles. And, and so the makeup for me was not only distracting, but it was just looked awful. There's no way anyone can look at the white people playing Asian makeup and say it's good. Like, I don't care if you're offended by it or not offended by yes. it. Yes. You can't say it looks good because it looks terrible. Like, look, here's what I want to say on this topic. Within the context of this movie, I think it's fair because everybody's playing everybody, right? Like, yeah. I understand how it is sort of offensive for a white person to play an, a Korean person. But but there are also Korean people playing, like, Hispanic characters. I'm with you, Rodney. I think, you know, it was, it was a... a structural choice to tr try to have uh, all the different actors playing multiple roles throughout the thing. And it's they're, what they're trying to do. There was like a theme with this. So they're trying to make it all this interconnectedness. I right. just thought it was 
kind of bullshit. It didn't really convey that at all. So yeah, I think the best way I can put it is like it doesn't offend me, but the makeup is really bad. It ranges yeah. from like okay to really bad, and that is what hurts because every time you see one of the white people in Korean makeup, they look <laughs> so wrong. They look. It looks like it is offensive. It goes to me. both ways too because Bia Duna at the end, Una Bay. When you see her do, you know. In Caucasian makeup, she looks like Chucky. Yep. Yeah. She's so <laughs> disturbing at the end there. She's really creepy. But here's a question for us. Is there any one makeup job in the movie that works? That you're like, you're like, they did good with that. I mean, some of the stuff on Tom Hanks when he's got the scar and stuff. Oh, I love uh, I love uh, the way that uh, Hugo Weaving looks as uh, Georgie, as old Georgie. Which one's Georgie? When he's the demon green, the devil. I didn't know, his, I didn't know that he had a name. Okay. Yeah. Georgie is the devil. Yeah, and then there's Keith David as an Asian. That's yeah. terrible. Oh, that <laughs> one's really questionable. That looks very Star Trek there. I don't think I can say that anything was good, but I can say that I really think that um, Jim Sturgis as the Asian looks fucking awful. I mean, and James Darcy as the Asian like interrogator. Yeah. Yes, those, are, those are the winners of the worst makeup in the movie. Mm, I would say Keith David also as the... Asian. I, I guess if I was going to have to give one to the the least horrible, it would probably be Halle Berry playing like the white woman in the Frobisher story. And it's not okay. good, but it's not as bad as most of the other ones. I like it's definitely like once you see, you're like, okay, I can roll with this. As opposed yeah. to, you're right. When Tom Hanks shows up, you can't stop staring at his nose. Like you're just yeah. like that is so fake. But that's like yeah, in the very beginning, just Tom Hanks as this um, slave trader, right? Yeah, he he looks ridiculous, just in a in a prosthetic nose. Like and it's it's pretty subtle makeup, but he's it's not just the makeup. I think the makeup sort of paves the way for the overacting and the yeah. cartoonishness with the like the caricatures that they're they're playing with these as well i know that they have way better makeup effects out there because i saw that tom hanks movie where they use makeup to make him look like a little doll and he fights with that space dude what's it toy story <laughs> couldn't even tell us tom yeah. hanks all i'm saying is that the makeup just sort of sets up a lack of seriousness let me backtrack a little bit on that. The tone of the movie does match some of the tone of the book. The book is pretty silly in parts, but each story has its own tone. Like the uh, Timothy Cavendish stories that- Jim Broadbent one, yeah. Yeah, that one is is supposed to be pretty silly. I just feel like the throughout this thing was cartoonish from the very beginning. Really? I felt like each- segment had its own tone that it kind of stuck to for the most part yes you know like the like i feel like the the far future one like whatever we want to call that the, the after the fall we need to find out ways to describe these for listeners but like i feel like the after the fall and halle berry in the 70s and jim broadbent on the run like those three kind of hold their tone well you know like they are consistent yeah. i do feel like the 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 slave trader ship it's kind of all over the place sometimes it's really serious and then tom hanks is like chewing the scenery that's what i'm talking about like it starts off and you think oh this is going to be uh, a drama but then tom hanks with his prosthetic nose doing like one of his worst portrayals in the film i think i gotta tell you you want to get drunk you play a drinking game where every time tom hanks is doing bad acting you drink 
you'll be drunk before 30 minutes. Like, But I love Tom Hanks. Norman. So do I'm I. kind of a Tom Hanks fan. It's one of Tom Hanks' favorite movies of his. He says this is the only movie he's ever watched of his twice, and it's because he gets something more and more out of it every time he watches it. Yeah, that's what every actor once <laughs> loves. They're like, oh, I, ha- I play 37 parts, and I'm in every moment of the three-hour <laughs> movie. Of course it's his favorite movie. <laughs> My nightmare is going to see this movie with Tom Hanks, and he keeps nudging you and being like, See that guy? That's me too. Hey, that one's me. That gangster? Me. (laughs) Well, I think what you guys are sort of hitting on is the fact that there is sort of a tone problem with this movie. And I think it works if you're looking at the stories individually for them to all have their own tone. But the problem is, is the way this movie deals with the stories is by cutting them all together and really only tying the scenes together just sort of by general themes or, you know, just visual cues here and there. And you're even getting like voiceovers from the other stories overlapping into the stories. So they've taken all of these stories, all six of these stories, and basically cut them up and put them all together in one long continuum. And while I think the editing is actually pretty decent considering that's what they're doing, I think maybe the idea of doing it that way in the case of this story was a bad idea because you're getting these wild tonal shifts for when you're going from story to story. And it doesn't help that then you're seeing an actor in some kind of crazy makeup that's taking you out of it. Especially when you're cutting from Tom Hanks to Tom Hanks to Tom Hanks. (laughs) That's when it gets really frustrating. But I mean, obviously they're doing it because they're trying to tie together these themes of reincarnation and, you know, the Wachowskis are really into Buddhism. And that's, you know, that's one of the themes of the book, like all of the characters that have a star shooting star birthmark. They're supposed to be the same person reincarnated through every story. Yeah, but those are a couple of characters in the book and you're supposed to follow like maybe a handful of them right but this is you're talking about like actors playing 10 different people and the extras and the person in the background and you know their friend and the knuckle sandwich gangster guy who 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 was he reincarnated into no not not everybody is meant to be somebody who's reincarnated that's a different thing but i'm saying the main character in every story is supposed to be the same person and that's the person with the the shooting star birthmark right the same soul The same soul. But they should have just had the same actor or actress play that character. That's what I was saying. You can't make this like, you know, 20 different people all over the place playing, you know, stick to maybe one actor playing that one soul. That would have been interesting. And and Hugo Weaving did a fine job of playing Nurse Noakes. So let's say he should have been the one. (laughs) I have so many issues here. If you had the same group of actors in all six segments and you told me that these six people were constantly reincarnated and being like drawn back into each other's lives. That would sort of make sense. I think that's kind of what they're saying. But it doesn't really make sense because some of these stories overlap, like the uh, the the Louisa Ray story. Oh, you're right. You know, you're they, right. They overlap, so you would have three different versions of these people walking around at the same time. Especially like Frobisher. Uh, what's his friend that he's writing to? That's the other thing I'm going to struggle with. Sex Smith. So many Sex Smith. So he's writing Sex Smith. Sex Smith actually overlaps into the Louisa Ray story. So like you can't be reincarnated until your your souls died out and jumped into another body. So yeah, but they're not saying that's a reincarnation. That's the same guy. I know. But all I'm saying is is that the idea of like this this soul kind of transferring 
and carrying on doesn't quite work because some of these, the, the timing wouldn't work. He's not the reincarnated soul, though, in that story. I was just using that as an example. I know, I know, I know. But I'm saying, like, it does, it, it tracks for me just fine because it's not, you're not saying, like, oh, this, now this reincarnated person would still be alive in the story before. Like, the, re the person who's gotten reincarnated died and now they're somebody else and it just so happens that this guy sexsmith has lived through that time period and is in both stories i think it's yes. kind of cool what i agree with you is that by throwing all these other actors into the mix and having them playing these different characters every time it confuses the issue even though i yes. sort of see the point they are saying that like oh these people are also sort of recurring and they're affecting things too like you can't really get away from you know, all these types of people like the Hugo Weaving character is a villain in every single story. He's always the villain. He's, you know, he, sometimes he's a funny villain. Sometimes he's not that important of a villain. Sometimes he's the main villain, but he's yeah. always a negative force in every single story. So I do feel like they're kind of trying to do that. Tom Hanks throws everything off because Tom Hanks is like a totally awful anybody. person. Right. And then he's a totally great person. And then you know, he's just anybody. So I think it's really Tom Hanks that throws it I off. I didn't even think of Hugo Weaving as deliberately playing the negative force. I just thought they cast him as the villain because he's just always plays the villain in their films. Probably both <laughs> things are true. <laughs> Why don't we get into the stories and then we can kind of just dig into right. it more as we go through them. So we're not going to talk about them as they occur in the movie, because in the movie, they're all cut up and they're all sort of happening at the same time. But in terms of time and chronological order, the first story takes place in 1849. It starts in the Chatham Islands and we meet an American lawyer, Adam Ewing, played by Jim Sturgis, the wannabe heartthrob of the late 2000s and early 2010s. Do you remember Yikes. when Jim Sturgis was in every movie? Like, they were really pushing Jim Sturgis a lot. I don't remember this. I have no memory of this man. No matter how many times you say his name, I don't know who this is. What are some other big films? He was in that uh, ac Across the Universe, that Beatles musical. Yeah, skipped he, that one. Didn't see it. He was in some movie with uh, Anne Hathaway. He was in a bunch of didn't movies that it. were bombs. This is obviously your man crush, Jim Sturgis. No, it's not. I actually, he liked him just fine, but they really pushed Jim Sturgis. They really okay. wanted us to fall in love with Jim Sturgis around this time. Who's this they? They, Rodney. <laughs> the Hollywood elite. They really were pushing Jim Sturgis on me, and I'm, I wasn't having it, and no one else was having it either. But I like Jim Sturgis just fine. He's a good actor. That's clear. Anyway, he witnesses the whipping of this slave named Atua, who's played by an actor, David Gayasi, who I don't know who that is, and he's this enslaved Maori man. And then later, Jim Sturgis, or the character of Adam, is on his way back to America, and he's taken along this Dr. Henry Goose, who is played by Tom Hanks, and Adam thinks that he's got some sort of sickness, and uh, Henry Goose has convinced him that it's some sort of parasite, but really, he, Henry Goose is poisoning him so he can steal his gold, but this Maori man has stoned away on the ship, and befriends um, Adam, and you know, Adam actually gets him a job on the ship because it turns out he's really good at like rigging the sails or whatever. And the slave figures out that 
that Henry Goose is poisoning Adam and he saves his life. And then when Adam gets back to San Francisco, he confronts his father-in-law, who's played by Hugo Weaving, who's a slaver. And he says he's not going to be involved in the slavery business anymore. And he's going to join the abolitionists. He's taken a stand against slavery. So that's his big sort of part in this movie. Now, in my opinion, this was the weakest of all the stories. I get it. It's a, you know, it's a touching story about a white man who like stand, makes a stand against slavery. And I don't know. I just, I don't really care for this story. I don't think it's terribly interesting. And out of all the stories, this is the one I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know if I need this. Well, yeah. First of all, it was clear that you feel that way just from your rendition of the events. You're like, yeah, and then, you know, whatever. He gets whipped and he's like, I'm going to poison this guy. And he's like, fuck off. And he, he gets off the <laughs> ship and he tells his dad, fuck off. And that's it. Okay, moving on. But I do agree with you. It's funny because this one feels the most to me like a real movie. Like it feels very cinematic being on the ship, you know, and like the costumes are great. But it's also unfortunately plagued by a lot of goofy Tom Hanks as this over the top evil doctor, greedy doctor, whatever you want to call him. I do like the relationship between I can't, Jim Sturgis and and uh, the, the stowaway, right? Like the runaway slave. I thought they have some good moments together. There's this really great moment where he, Jim Sturgis says, like, how do I know I can trust you? And he says, because of this. And he, like, points at his eyes and he means, like, look in my eyes. We're both men. That's the way I interpreted that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, like, I actually felt that. I felt a moment of emotion there. But in general, I think you could, well, I was going to say you could cut this out and it wouldn't change the movie. But that's true of all the segments. <laughs> but <laughs> no, some of the segments directly influence the other segments. In general, this is, every time I cut back to the ship, there, there's really... There's nothing I'm looking forward to. Like, I don't care about where the story is going. I, I agree on that. Though, I will also say I like the part where they bring the slave up on the deck and he's like, I, I know how to sail. And they're like, prove it. And he like yeah. runs up and he's like better than any sailor I've ever seen. Although I've only seen a few sailors. Yeah, that's the best part of the whole segment for sure. And it's a really cool action scene. And he like jumps off the rigging. And one yeah. of the guys is going to like shoot him because they're racist. But he's doing such a good job that... The captain, who's played by Jim Broadbent and weird makeup, won't let him. Yep. That scene is definitely the standout. I remember seeing shots of that in the trailer, like when you see him jumping off of the sail with the rope. But like, yeah, the rest of the story is just it doesn't have that any sort of impact that way. I agree with Rodney that this one felt like it could have been the most theatrical, except for Tom Hanks being <laughs> this kind of buffoon. And then as far as... Uh, this one being omitted and you still being to play uh, the rest of the film, kind of. And it, this is my problem with the with the film in general, is I feel like the film is trying to, which I don't think was really the intention of the, the original source material, is that the film is really leaning on this, like you were saying before, this kind of reincarnation and shared souls and, and, and co connectedness, which is is in the source material, but... That's the part that I think is is a lot more subtle. Mm -hmm. But what the the book is is really about is like your actions, right? And and the choices that people make and how that that affects past and, and present. And and so you can kind of have this fluidity based on choices. The, the thing that's getting lost and why this this segment doesn't feel as important in the rest of the movie is that. In the book, what this is really setting up in, in, with a lot of the dialogue is it's, it's talking a lot about slavery and as far as like who's in control 
and power. And the Tom Hanks character in, in the book isn't necessarily just trying to steal his gold, but he's also trying to educate Adam Ewing on the importance of, of slavery right. and this sort of dog eat dog and who's going to win and, and everything. And there's these, there's these whole dialogue sequences in there about that. And then as that carries on throughout the rest of the book, the theme of slavery is pretty important for the other stories, not necessarily the Louisa Ray one, but the Orison of Sony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. She actually, yeah, she's trying to fight slavery uh, the story of Zachary and after the fall, the other tribe actually enslaves them at one point. And so Zachary becomes slave and he's trying to fight his way out. So you see this theme of people fighting against slavery and choosing abolitionists. That as a story in the beginning becomes really important. And I feel like in the film that sort of gets a little sidetracked. It's all about like Tom Hanks trying to steal this guy's gold. Is, is what it becomes there. Yeah. The author said that one of his main themes was predacity, which basically means people preying on other people, which is, you know, what slavery is. And yeah, I definitely think that gets sort of pushed to the background for in favor of this idea of like reincarnation and that we're all affecting each other's lives and it echoes throughout time on and on forever. They're putting a backseat to that whole idea. I do think there's something really funny about watching Tom Hanks in a prosthetic nose say the N-word. If you ever wanted to see Tom Hanks do that, this is your chance. Maybe you should make some kind of groovy meme out of it. I feel like I'm not going to touch it. I'm just just mentioning that it's in the movie. That was one of the things that I, I would say was, was at least entertaining in this, was to see Tom Hanks play some pretty unsavory characters, like the, uh, the knuckle sandwich gangster guy that's that i can't wait to talk about that that's the highlight of the movie so the next segment takes place in 1936 it takes place in england and we're following robert frobisher as played by ben wishaw ben wishaw is an actor i really like i'm a big fan of the bond movies which i don't think either of you are really bond fans but he has played q in the last three movies and i really like him as a as a presence i remember when they were really pushing him on me trying to make him a heartthrob and i was like i'm not having it <laughs> that you can't push ben wishaw enough for my opinion he's also got one amazing head of wavy hair i just want to run my fingers through it but he is a what is called an amnesis. I cannot pronounce what this is. They say it a million times in the movie and I still can't pronounce it. But he basically assists composers with writing their music. But he's, you know, got ambitions to compose his own music, but he is gay and having a relationship with this gentleman, Rufus Sexsmith, who's played by James Darcy. And at the beginning of the story, People are coming to his apartment and catching them in bed, and it's this scandalous thing, and he has to run out the window. So they're establishing that, you know, gay men are not accepted in this time, and so he's sort of a second-class citizen in that regard. But he goes off to help this aging composer, Vivian Ayers, who's played by Jim Broadbent, who was once a great composer, but he's sort of lost it in his old age. He needs help with his compositions, and they sort of form this adversarial friendship in a way. And Frobisher ends up composing this symphony or whatever called the Cloud Atlas Sextet, which gives the movie its name. 
And of course, like a lot of these stories that involve composers, Jim Broadbent hears the Clouds Atlas sextet and is like, I've been hearing that in my dream. And Frobisher's like, yeah, I've been playing it. You just heard it. And he's like, well, that's going to be mine then, basically. And then Frobisher stupidly tries to kiss old Jim Broadbent, which is a really bad idea. I mean, I, I get it that he's feeling close to this old dude, but like not a good move. Uh, yeah, I don't really buy that. That was that scene was <laughs> contrived. I, I think you could say. I will say, though, that the the character of Vivian Ayers actually I thought was one of the best villains in the film mm-hmm. because he's pretty despicable. Like yeah. uh, the other villains are your typical kind of oppression uh, people or, or action villains. But Vivian Ayers is a, is a pre- he's just so unlikable, especially just what he's doing to this poor guy. How do you know his name, Troy? I Googled it. I guess you did read the book. I used the internet for that. I, d- I did read the book, but I can't keep track of these people's names. We do this totally different on, on, on Pod Forsaken. I would just call this guy the piano guy. I'd be like, you know, there's the old old piano guy and young piano I'm trying guy. to bring this up a notch from your podcast, all right, Rodney? <laughs> totally we have fair. higher standards here on Tentpole Trauma. Learn the goddamn names. <laughs> there were 800 characters in this movie. I could call it the piano guy, but there's two of them. That's why I said old piano guy. Okay. <laughs> No, no, Vivian Ayers. We know his name now. It's Vivian Ayers, right? Yeah. Okay. I like it. It's classy. First of all, I'm a, I'm a big Jim Broadbent fan in general. He's only in two segments. I guess he has little minor roles in some of the other segments, but he's really only in two segments in this movie, right? Did they ever do young makeup? No. They had a young actor playing him as a young man in the 2012 sequence. I would have liked to see uh, Jim Broadbent in young makeup playing his younger self. I would be down for that. But regardless, he's great in this segment. And I, I like this segment in general. I like it. Uh, I agree with, you, with the the part where he goes to kiss him. It didn't feel like that was built up to, right? Because like their relationship is basically like the, the old guy just yelling at him all the time, being like, write down those notes. And he's like, yes, sir. <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden he like goes to kiss him. And it's like, at what moment did you ever feel like there was any chemistry between the no. two of you? I completely agree with you, Troy, that... um. It's like one of the few subtle performances in the in the movie. You know, like he comes across as like like a real person. Actually, both of them do, I think. I think it's one of the better uh, dramatic segments. Do you think that is because Tomb Tickwer directed this segment and the Wachowskis directed the first segment? Wait, let's talk about who directed which segments. Oh, so, yeah, that's important. So because I thought Tom Tykwer did the first, the Adam Ewing one as well. No, he no. did not. Okay. He did 1936, 1973, and 2012. Then the Wachowskis did 1849, the first one, and then they did the two sci-fi ones. These dates mean nothing to me. The oldest one the Wachowskis did, and then the sci-fi ones. The two future ones. All right. To repeat that again, so the Wachowskis did the slave trading one. Yes. And the fall, like with the story of Zachary. Yes. Yes. And uh, and also the um, future Korea or new Seoul. OK, future Korea. Let's call it future Korea. OK, so those are the Wachowskis. Right. Yes. And Tom Tickwer did the middle three. OK, he did on the run. I don't like the piano. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what's the other one? Uh, the Timothy Cavendish, the publisher in the uh, the the hospital. Oh, right. I called. I was calling that on the run. I guess the other one is, give me those papers. <laughs> give me those papers. Okay, Louisa Ray, the journalist, right? Yes. Okay. On the run and give me the papers. <laughs> those could kind of be the whole movie, right? Those are in every story, really. 
Pretty much. <laughs> That's all you need, man. I will say this about this segment is I feel like this has kind of the most emotional weight going yes. for it because yeah. after Frobisher is outed as a bisexual, we learn he's actually bisexual because he actually sleeps with the old composer's wife at one point who's played in weird makeup by Halle Berry. But the composer doesn't even get mad at that. He just gets mad at him hitting on him. And so after that, Frobisher shoots him with his own gun because he wants to keep his Cloud Atlas sextant and, and the composer wants to steal it. So he wounds him and doesn't kill him. And then he's got to go into hiding and he knows he's basically fucked. So he ends up killing himself in the bathroom as his lover tries to find him in London. And they even have a really kind of touching scene where the lover goes to this like church that he knows he goes to every day and he's actually there at the church, but he in the bell tower or whatever, and he hides and doesn't connect with him because he doesn't want to see him before he kills himself. And that scene is pretty touching. So yeah, I think overall, like this movie tries to get at your heartstrings a lot and I think often it fails, but I do feel like this segment is successful in that. Yeah. I'll say that it, it fails when he tries to kiss Jim Bradman. Yes, that's a contrived plot point. That sets in motion the fact that now Jim Broadbent has this societal ammunition against Frobisher. He's going to tell all the people in society that he's gay and that in that way he can own this composition that he's made. But I will say that the, the reason that didn't work and you say there wasn't really much information leading up to why he would even be interested in this guy is because, you know, it didn't seem like there was really much road work paved it was explained that he wanted to work with him. He was a great composer and everything. Yeah. We didn't really get his passion for that man's music. It seemed like he more just took a job. I'm pretty sure he says like he's pretty stoked because this dude's like super famous and he yeah. can't believe how lucky he is. Like it's implied that he's it's into implied. his music. Also, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you see that like there's a book and maybe it's like holding up one of the piano legs or something. That's yeah. like the diary. It's the journal from the first one. It's the yeah, journal right. of Adam Ewing. Right. Which I think is, what does that have to do with it? He's like, he, Frobisher says at some point, once he's starting to stay at the house, he's like, I came across this diary and it was fascinating, but it just ended halfway through and I wanted to read the next, the rest of it. And he's writing this in a letter to his lover and he's like, yeah. Sixsmith, if you could find this in one of the shops you frequent, it would be much appreciated. It's like, what, a shop's just going to have the other half of this <laughs> white guy's diary about abolitionism? Like, I feel like a lot of these connective tissues issues are a little weak yeah they're very weak and and that's again like um i think he had been reading uh the diary and uh he was only able to read half and and i think that when he sees it under the table he sees that there's another half and he's able to finally read the other half oh is that what's happening yeah it's it is so confusing because it was also a little bit confusing in the book but basically the way the book was structured is you could only read half of adam ewing's diary and then it stops because right. you're going to come back to it right gotcha. a second time so that's why it was broken in the book the way they're cutting this movie between all of these stories constantly why they even needed to put that in the movie to begin with just made the movie really confusing. There was no need for it. No, exactly. Like I, I've seen it twice now. And each time I was like waiting for the thing that explains how they're all connected 
but that never really happens. That's what I was saying before is that it is focusing way too much on this idea of like reincarnation right. and this traveling soul. It's not really about that. I think we have to sort of put that aside because that's what the book was doing and the movie isn't doing it. It's paying lip service to it. But the reason I'm saying that is because some a lot of these things are left in the movie and it gets muddled. It, it's yes. like super confusing. So a lot of these structural things are in there, but... You, like you were saying, Rodney, is that that connective tissue is is just kind of broken up and shattered all over the place. What's missing for me is like the moment where you say, oh, my God, if Halle Berry never heard the cloud atlas, this wouldn't have happened. Right. Yeah. But like yeah. as far as far as I can remember, her hearing the cloud atlas didn't actually change what she does. It doesn't seem to. No. I will say it does apply for what we'll get to it, but in the future Korea thing, right? Because yes. she watches that movie, there's an impact. Which is so dumb though. It's because dumb. the I movie agree. is such a goofy, <laughs> silly movie. And like this is gonna like convince this woman yeah. to break the shackles of slavery. It's like someone watching the jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so watch the jerk and it caused them to become like M. Night Shyamalan in Lady in the Water. <laughs> if you haven't heard that episode, you should go back. Yeah, on Tentpole Trauma. <laughs> All right, well, let's move forward. We can keep touching upon these things as they go because there are these little things in each segment. And every almost every time, I think they totally whiff it. And I'm just like, I don't get why this is really connecting it. It didn't for me either. Like, none of this seemed to really add up. The movie... it. The entire time, if you haven't watched it, it feels like it's on the edge of being like really important and in yeah, like yeah. grandiose. But unfortunately, it just feels like a bunch of scenes just randomly. Like, as you, I think one of you said, the editing is good and that you easily can follow where you are. Like, you, you can yeah. keep track of all six stories. And I appreciate that. But it's just sort of like, it does the whole time you're like, what do these six stories have to do with anything? And the answer is very little. The answer is the makeup. The makeup and the shooting star tattoo. Yeah, no, that's it. And it's it's like such a kind of, I know it was a, a seemed to be like a bold choice, but I think it was just lazy. Like, honestly, to have all these people in this makeup was trying to make these, a really sloppy connection between all these things. So the next story we get is in 1973, and it takes place in San Francisco, and we are centered around this journalist, Louisa Ray, as played by Halle Berry. She meets Six Smith, as we said before. He's now older, uh, he's kind of an old man, and he's a nuclear physicist. They get stuck in an elevator together, and he tips her off to this conspiracy that's going on in a local nuclear reactor. This guy, Lloyd Hooks, played by Hugh Grant, is really promoting his nuclear reactor. And there's a conspiracy that's sort of uncovered. And the Six Smith character is killed by this hitman, Bill Smoke, before he can give her this report that will prove that really this guy, Lloyd Hooks, is in cahoots with the oil energy interests. And they're planning to stage a meltdown or something at the nuclear reactor and kill a bunch of people so we'll all run screaming back to oil as our energy source so yeah it's like this 70s conspiracy thriller where you know she's basically finding out more evidence she's being chased around by this hugo weaving hitman character the awkward part of this story, other than your, your, what you mentioned, Troy, when she finds the record and listens to it and that supposedly does something for her, is they have this two-second 
sort of romance where she meets this scientist, Isaac Sachs, played by Tom Hanks. <laughs> that was Tom Hanks? <laughs> <laughs> this time he's not wearing like a full nose or whatever. But the weird part about this is so they have this conversation and they smoke a joint. And this scene takes place in front of one of the worst like backgrounds, screen. blue screens yeah. I've ever yeah. seen. Like for a second, I thought they didn't even have a blue screen. I thought they just took a photo of like the <laughs> San Francisco Bay. Yeah, but then I'm painful. like, no, I did notice there's a little movement in the water. So no, this is <laughs> some sort of digital image. But it was it's so bad. And they keep cutting back to the shot. And you're like, dude, fix the shot. But they smoke a joint. And then she basically convinces Tom Hanks to give her, you know, the copy of Six Myths Report. And then Tom Hanks goes off in a plane and the, the friggin assassin blows up the whole plane, killing everybody. <laughs> but like before that, Tom Hanks is like, am I in love with with Louisa <laughs> yeah. Ray, like suddenly he's in yeah. love with her. Like, and this is all just because they want to set up them being in love at the very end of the movie when they're in the post-apocalyptic future together. And that love story doesn't work either. <laughs> so they're setting up this love story that's not going to work later. And it's really awkward and weird. And I don't know why they bothered to do it. I think you just said exactly why they bothered to do it is because they are trying to have these parallel relationships i get it but it doesn't work like no. you look at this and you go it doesn't work did it work in the post-apocalyptic one either no that's what i'm saying <laughs> but like if the whole movie were about like those two kind of coming together in six or in time periods that's a movie right? right yes but it's only in two of them so i don't dude i'm i'm with you i rewound it just to make sure i was like did i didn't they just meet and like that yeah. evening he's on a plane and he it's He's like leaning back in his chair and in voiceover, he's like, would it be weird if I were to say I'm in love with Elisa, whatever, whatever. And then it's like, boom, dead. (laughs) (laughs) It's also like kind of the worst plane explosion I've ever seen in a movie. It goes off the way like a like a like a child's firecracker goes. It goes like pop. It is nothing compared to the first Final Destination movie. And That's I'm, what I'm saying. Being serious. Yeah, like or Fight Club. And when was that? That was nineties. I think they had to pay Tom Hanks his acting fee for each part. And then they were like, well, that's the whole budget. They're like, take it out of the visual effects. We can I got a picture of a sunset. How we many characters does the- Tom Hanks play here? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> oh my god. I mean like IMDB will list maybe five of them but he plays at least two in every sequence so you're probably about 12 yeah probably 12 because he plays like these little things here and there as well is it isn't it just one isn't he just one in each one i think it's just six i think he's like big nose doctor he's shady motel guy yeah he owns a hotel because that's two he's 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 like you know loves uh sick scientist in in the 70s yeah, he's oi oi knuckle sandwich. Right, he's right? the best role in the whole. <laughs> the, movie. Best, the best, the best role. Yes, uh, <laughs> awesome. Is, I love is that. He, is he is he in future Korea? I feel like he is. No, there's no way he's not. No, but... he's he's totally. I feel like I saw him in there. No, he's he plays he plays Jim Broadbent in the movie version. In the movie, of... yes, right. yes. There we go. He's the actor who plays the the movie yes. that they see, and then he plays Tom Hanks in After the Fall. Yeah, so no, only six. It just seems like a lot. It seems endless. It does seem like, if you told me that all the extras were also Tom Hanks, I would believe that. (laughs) He has to show up in little tiny pieces here and there as as a couple of other people. It it just feels like, I think the reason is because no one else is in 
every segment. I guess Hugo Weaving is, right? Yeah, Hugo Weaving is. Yeah. Is there anyone else who's in all six segments? I don't think so. Is Hugh Grant in all of them? He's in a lot. He's in a lot. Guys, let's not try to go through everything and count how many Part, This is the only reason that you would ever want to watch Cloud Atlas. The only reason to watch this movie is yeah. to say, oh my God, that's Tom Hanks. Oh my God, that's Hugo Weaving. <laughs> no, if you try to watch it for the, the story, you've made a terrible mistake. Well, what do you guys think of this segment? I actually kind of like this segment. I like 70s oh. political thrillers. I like it because the actors are in less makeup than they are, except for Tom Hanks. But- Everybody else is just kind of playing it straight, which I like. I like seeing just Keith David. I like seeing Hugo Weaving. And it's just Halle Berry. It's actually the most straightforward segment. And it's kind of a more appetizing story as well. It's just a a sleuth. Like she's a journalist trying to hunt down the, the truth and uncover the truth. It's the perfect kind of segment to put in an anthology movie, which this essentially is, because it's not good enough to be its own movie, but it's good enough to hold your attention in a anthology movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you don't need a whole movie of this, but what they give you is just the right amount, I think. I mean, it's not brilliant or anything, but I feel like it's solid. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like, look, I just don't. I don't like the 70s. No offense. I know you guys were like born during them. But like, I don't like the visual aesthetic of it. I don't like the fashion of it. I don't like the hairstyles. And on top of that, I don't like movies about get the papers, right? If you ever listened to Bread, you will fall in love with the 70s. Yeah, you need to listen to Bread, bro. Bread? What's what's Bread? Is this a band? Is this one of those musical groups? It's the softest <laughs> of the soft rock you'll ever hear. Yeah. My point here is that I also don't like movies about like, like movies like the, the insider, right. That are just like, Oh man, like this company is trying to do a bad thing. And this other character is trying to get the word out. I just don't give a shit about this segment. Having said that it does at least have more, some of the more exciting sequences in it. Cause there's like things happening. There are guns and explosions and car crashes, which is a big improvement over the first two segments. But like, I don't know. I also agree that it has the least amount of makeup. So it's the, it feels like a real movie. It doesn't feel like you're watching like. That's why I like it. A cartoon, you know? Mm-hmm. I just don't care. Like if you told me I could watch the 90 minute version of this movie, I'd be like hard pass. I do not care. Yeah, I wouldn't want to watch the 90 minute version either. That's what I said. That's why I say it works well in an anthology. Yeah, but I'm saying what you said with more words. <laughs> yeah. I know you hate the 70s, Rodney, but did do you honestly feel like this segment feels like the 70s to you no it feels like a it feels like a weird like stage play of the 70s it doesn't feel authentically 70s right but it does have like they're using prop automobiles and the hairstyles and so forth like it doesn't look like the french connection which i believe is from the 70s right you're correct yeah that's a pretty good movie actually i'll give you that one that one's good that Jaws film, that was pretty good, too. I'm sure there's like 50 movies from the 70s that you love if you would just stop to think about it. Of course. There's probably at least 10. But go ahead, Troy, why don't you just tell me why it's not like the 70s, why it's inauthentic? Oh, no, I was just wondering because you you have uh, such a, a reaction to the 70s. I was wondering if this was too authentic of the 70s for you. Did it feel authentic? I felt like they did a good job of recreating the 70s. Well, it still had a little bit of that sheen to it. Like when she when she's in the car accident, right? Like that yeah. was very CG. It looked very staged. Yeah. I personally would have preferred if this had been filmed in the way they shot movies in the 70s. Like it 
It doesn't have the gritty realism of cinema from the 70s. I'll say the, the guy that works at the record store with the headband going, hey, man, uh, nails it. <laughs> That's Ben Wishaw in makeup. Who? Frobisher from the 36 oh, okay. story. Ah. All right. You know, I like, like, look, I like uh, Hugo Weaving as a hitman. I think that's cool. I like the little kid. There's like a little kid that's like Halle Berry's like friend or yeah. lives in the apartment or whatever. I don't know. I just, I just don't really, I just don't care. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know what its version of the 70s reminded me of? Have you guys seen uh, that X-Men movie? Yes. Days of Future Past, where they go back to the 70s. Do they go to the 70s in that one? Yeah, it seems like almost exactly the same version of the 70s. So this feels like X-Men 70s? Totally. I think you're thinking of X-Men First Class. No, that's 60s. Is it? All right, all right. Well, I don't like those either. You don't like the 60s either, Rodney? Calm down, everyone. Just stay calm. <laughs> you clearly don't know your X-Men franchise. <laughs> but yeah, in the same way, I, I know what you Are you saying, Sebastian, in the way that the X-Men movie feels like a Hollywood version of the yes. 70s? Exactly. It does not feel authentic, but they clearly spent money on the props. One period they got right was the next segment because it takes place in 2012, uh, the actual year the movie came out. And it takes place in London, and it involves uh, Timothy Cavendish, who is a publisher. His latest author is the gangster Dermot Hoggins, as played by Tom Hanks. That was Tom Hanks? In a incredible prosthetic nose. And, and scars. Scar makeup, too. Scar makeup. He's written the book Knuckle Sandwich, which is like, I don't know, a hard-hitting sort of Guy Ritchie gangster book or whatever based on his own experiences. That's what I gather from this brief scene. But they're at this party and Dermot Hoggins isn't happy about a critic who's savaged his book. So he throws him off a balcony and kind of my favorite moment in the whole movie because I've had my own writing criticized and I know how that <laughs> feels. But the rest of the story is what I like to call the kick the can of Cloud Atlas because <laughs> it's basically turns in this story Jim Broadbent's got to go on the run because these gangster friends of Hoggins come after him for money for some reason. And so he goes to his rich brother for help. And his rich brother is played by uh, Hugh Grant under a ton of makeup. And he tells him to go hide out at this place he owns called the Aurora House. And the Aurora House turns out to be an old age home. And Jim Broadbent has been tricked into basically signing uh, his freedom away. And now he is subject to the whims of this nurse ratchet like evil nurse played by Hugo Weaving in a lot of makeup and sort of a Mrs. Doubtfire look to him. Hugo Weaving looks so much like Mrs. Doubtfire in this segment. <laughs> But yeah, so it basically just becomes this story of he befriends these old people and they all want to escape too. So it's, we're going to escape this place and they escape and they go on the run and they end up chasing them to a Scottish pub and they rile up the Scottish sports fans there to fight the hospital people. And, you know, it's, it's a really sort of almost slapsticky comedy piece and the only sort of real emotional sort of bit in it is that Timothy Cavendish is sort of longing for this old flame of his uh, who will later be played by Susan Sarandon. And we get this sort of silly flashback where he's a young man and they get caught having sex. So he escapes from her house, but he ends up back with her at the very end and he writes this screenplay about his experience which is going to become a f movie that will 
play into the next story. My only real problem with this is, A, it reminds me of Kick the Can, which is my least favorite segment in the Twilight Zone movie, which was directed by Steven Spielberg, shockingly. And the comedic tone of this would be fine if you took it as its own segment and you were just in this segment. But the the way that it's edited in with all the rest of the movie, we're like cutting back to this scene. Like after we're seeing like (laughs) a whole warehouse full of like replicants or whatever being like slaughtered horribly. And then it's like back to the goofy uh, old folks home. And it is slapstick too. This is the best segment in the movie, and I'm feeling like you don't agree. <laughs> this is the highlight of the film. You just like Knuckle Sandwich. <laughs> yeah. I really like Knuckle Sandwich, too. This is Tom Hanks's worst performance ever, okay? <laughs> it is without a doubt. There's still some films I haven't seen, like his early, that Dungeons and Dragons movie he made, whatever, like Mazes and Myths Wizard. and Monsters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you that's way better than him playing this London gangster. It is. He should have won a Razzie for worst supporting actor. It's amazing. It's worth watching this film just for this one scene. I I, I don't know if it's his worst performance. It might be brilliant. <laughs> it might be. It might actually be his most brilliant performance. I could watch that scene on repeat like <laughs> 10 times in a row and just love it every single time. When I started the movie, because the, the, the last I only saw it one time in theaters, right? And so I forgot that this scene happened. I just remembered that Tom Hanks played a gangster at some point. And so when I was rewatching it, I was like, Am I, did I make that up? And then when he came, I was like, oh, here we go. And it did not disappoint on a second viewing. I love when he throws the guy off the roof. That's cool. Because they show that guy actually like splatter on the pavement. My problem is I wish this story was about that. I don't like this old people yeah. escaping from the nursing home bullshit. Love it. I love it. I love that. Like, yo, here's Tom Hanks as a gangster. Isn't that cool? Fuck you. Now he's gone. He's no longer in this segment. <laughs> it's about an old guy trying to escape from a from a retirement home. That's so bonkers. He's, he's essentially trying to escape from Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. <laughs> I wish there were missing scenes of Hugo Weaving, like trying to get his divorce, you know, get his like kids back from his divorce, you know, wife. <laughs> and that's why he's working at this retirement home. That's why, that's he's, why so he's bitter. Yeah. <laughs> I completely agree with you guys on the tone, though. The majority of the movie is this pretty serious affair, no matter what segment you're in. But why am I watching a goofy caper of these three, four old people trying to escape? The music might as well be like, dun, 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 dun. Is they're like, they're like running down the hall. It's like you're watching fucking Benny Hill. Like, and yes. one of the old guys is like this little old man who only says like, I know, I know, or something like that. It's like all he can say. And then the big joke is at the end of the segment, he says something else. And it's like, oh, you mean he really could say other things? Like, God, the more you describe it, it really does. It, it is a lot like kick the can from the twilight zone you didn't pick up on that i thought for sure you would no i didn't think of it but now that you're like you're singling out these characters that they're lining up with that scene in the twilight zone so much they should have shot footage of the studio executives watching the dailies of cloud (laughs) atlas come in and if they had bundled that with the dvds they probably could have made their money back because that would be amazing yeah there had to have been some head scratching in those screening rooms how are they going to cut this all together and then someone else is like poorly or they're like okay okay so they're going to cut this all together right no this is actually the edit that's the movie i mean that's the thing is like i i think i would have enjoyed this story more if i experienced it all in one linear 
take rather than it being chopped up and thrown in the rest of the movie, which is like dead serious. Like the way the book is written. Like maybe just fucking make your movie the way the book is. I will say though that because some of them are slower paced and you know, they're, they're more serious. It's harder to get through those. Like I get why they kind of, cut all these togethers because it's asking a lot. But you're already in your movie theater seat. You're already there. You got to just sit there. No, I just don't understand why they did it because you're trying to wrangle in all audiences here, right? So- And failing miserably. Some of the, like, I am I am turned off by this segment as well because it's so, it's so stupid and silly, especially like once they're in the, once they're in the pub. Yeah. Uh, like I'm ready to check out. Like that's where I, I am going to let it play as I go to the bathroom and not even bother <laughs> pausing it. I can't argue with you there. The pub scene is pretty terrible. And that's the climax of yeah. the whole story. Yeah. In my mind, there are scenes after that, but you're right. That is actually where it ends, right? Oh, I guess he does go see Susan Sarandon, but other than that. That's the resolution of their whole story. They go to a pub and like Hugo Weaving and like the hospital staff come in and the old guy's like, they're fellow Scotsmen. Yeah, their plan is to just (laughs) wrangle up Scotsmen. What What do they do? They just start... They just rile up the Scotsman in the and they're like and he, and then they point to the doctors and Hugo Weaving and like they're not good Scotsmans or whatever and then <laughs> and then the, and a fight breaks out and there's a big bar fight yeah and that's it the end that's how they win <laughs> that's clever it's amazing how much money was spent on this <laughs> <laughs> it is great watching Hugo Weaving dressed as Nurse Ratchet like fighting Scotsman in a bar though that's pretty good you don't get that in every movie no. You have to at least appreciate it's a big swing. Like they yeah. are trying to do a lot. And I mean, it's a really, I feel, a noble failure at the very least. Like, I don't think you can call this film successful. No, there's nothing successful about this film, but I, a big swing, you are right. It is in focus. Knuckle sandwich. I know, knuckle sandwich. I get it. Oh, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kept thinking as I was watching it. This is a big swing, and I appreciate big swings every time. And I think that's why I keep showing up for Wachowskis in general, right? Yes. It's like, yeah, okay. Every single time, it's a big swing. I just kind of wish they'd hit the ball occasionally. <laughs> Sometimes big swings, though, like from the, the get-go, like even from the, the posters, you just are like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Like I, This reminded me of when, uh, do you remember Dick Tracy? Yeah, yeah good reference. That was a big swing and everybody was like, no, thank you. Like nobody <laughs> asked for that. Nobody wanted it. And I feel like this is one of those big swings. What do you guys feel about the next segment of the movie? Because this feels more in line with what you'd probably expect from the Wachowskis. We jump to the year 2144 and we follow Sanmi 451-9, played by Una Bay, who is this fabricant, which is, I think, the same thing as a replicant or whatever. But it's a humanoid clone and she's indentured as a fast food service at this like creepy Korean, I don't know, it's like a cafeteria or a diner or something. And, you know, she gets abused by her creepy boss and all the people at the diner. And then one of her co-workers, which is also like a fabricant, learns about these these ideas of rebellion that are taken from um, the movie about Cavendish's involuntary institutionalization, (laughs) which has got to be one of the biggest stretches this movie asks at all. That like somehow this clone 
who's not even the main clone of the story, figures out that this is the road to rebellion. We find out that these clones are basically, once they're being used up or if they do anything wrong, they're killed with these collars that make their necks explode. And then at the end of their lives or whatever, whenever they're deemed useless, they put them through this very Logan's run type ceremony where they're brought into this chamber and they think they're ascending to heaven or whatever, but they're really just killed like cattle. They're going to Hawaii, which is going to tie into the last story because the last story takes place in Hawaii. So then after this friend of hers is killed, Sumni is rescued by this rebel commander guy, Hai Jun Chang, who is played by Jim Sturgis in the worst Asian makeup in the movie, probably. (laughs) I kind of feel like the interrogator guy has the worst makeup, but it's a close, it's a very close call. He turns her on to the band writings of this Russian radical who I was not aware of this person, but it's a real person in history. I guess he wrote a lot of like anti-communist stuff during the heavy communist days of Russia. This further influences her and she learns all this stuff through these like learning machines and falls in love with the Jim Sturgis character because we're all supposed to fall in love with Jim Sturgis at this time in cinema history, but none of us really did. And then she learns that when the clones are freed and sent to Hawaii or ever, their heads are chopped off and they're sort of hung on these hooks like cattle and then their bodies are turned into this thing called soap which is a little confusing because this soap is something people actually eat in the story and they don't wash themselves with but it's called soap that's a lot like uh soylent green which is actually referenced in one of the other segments she learns about this and now she realizes that she's got to lead this rebellion which okay i get it that like since she's this sort of clone, like because she's become enlightened to their plight, she's going to become the figurehead of the rebellion. But it's another one of these kind of things within this movie where it's just like convenient, like, oh, now she's going to become this galvanizing figure of rebellion that everybody's going to go along with. But her lover gets killed during this big sort of uh, fight in this like an observatory or something in Hawaii, because it's the same building that later in the the uh, post-apocalyptic setting, that's where they go to transmit the message. Oh. And you see all the bodies. There's still dead bodies and stuff in that observatory. I didn't put that together. I don't understand how they get all the way to Hawaii. Is that... The boat. They're, they're going on a boat. Oh, okay. So the boat is where they load all the uh, fabricants up and say, right. basically what they're saying is you're going to ascend, which is their form of like retirement essentially. Yeah. Like, you know, you're done, your services are done, you get to retire and go to Hawaii, but the, the boat actually is a, uh, a slaughterhouse. It's hard to sometimes track some of these connective things because the movie's cutting between stories so quickly sometimes. Like, it's even harder to follow than it would be in a normal movie. The bottom line is she becomes this figurehead for the rebellion and the story ends with her being captured and she's recounting her story to this archivist who's played by James Darcy in the worst Asian makeup of No, the Keith whole. David has the worst Asian makeup, but it takes second place where is keith david with in asian makeup you missed that yeah he's there tell me you didn't miss it oh my god it happens i believe you i just don't remember the moment he becomes like what is he's a spiritual leader yes i think in the post-apocalyptic one it, oh it's in the post-apocalyptic one okay I think so. ah okay that's right he's a prescient 
one of Halle Berry's friends. So yeah, she is executed, but she becomes this great martyr for the rebellion. And then in the next story, she's going to be this deity-like figure that the post-apocalyptic people worship. I would say this is probably my favorite of all the stories, just because I think that the world building of Neo Soul is really cool. It's sort of half submerged because the waters have risen and they've got these sort of cool bikes they fly around that like sort of hover on these elevated water streams or something like that. And, you know, there, there's action and, and running around and gunfights <laughs> and stuff. It's pretty much a typical sci-fi action movie sort of setting. There, there's not a lot of groundbreaking here. It's my favorite because there's action and there's running around and stuff. Yeah. What's wrong with that? <laughs> no, I I believe you. Like, this is the Wachowskis completely showcasing. Like, you can tell they're yes. like, man, we are going to invest in this one. This is where they got completely jazzed about making this movie. And you can tell it was just ships and spaceships and cool action sequences. And uh, you write a lot of what's happening in the story and the, the revolution kind of gets a little lost in here, but there's a lot of guns and lasers and cool shit. This is obviously like the most Wachowski out of the whole thing. Yeah. And they do it well. I will say like, this is where they shine because they are great action directors. When they're being chased, this film looks great. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what I'm gonna say. I'm trying to throw. I'm trying to throw you guys a bone. You're the Wachowski fans. I think uh, Neo Soul looks awesome. I think this the 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 CG is pretty strong. I don't love the action sequences in this. They're they're good though. They're good. I feel like the trouble is is this movie never goes all in on anything, right? Yeah. And so, like, I like the part where they like blow up the tunnel and it floods or whatever. But that it the, the trouble is each action scene only lasts for like a minute. The most exciting thing that happens is when they make that bridge, you know, like across the two buildings. Yeah, I was just thinking of the bridge. The bridge part is cool. They like shoot this like grappling hook that turns into a, a bridge. It's pretty convenient. He has this device on the side of his building <laughs> that shoots a bridge across to the next building <laughs> perfectly. But, you know, hey, I'll go with it. It makes for a cool scene. You got to plan ahead, Sebastian. Yeah, that's good planning. But I, at the same time, it's like I wouldn't sit anyone down and be like, let me show you a really awesome action scene because what would I show you? Like like that moment? That moment's a minute. Show them the bridge. I'd show them the bridge, I guess. Okay, the, the bridge. Take it to the bridge. <laughs> I agree with you. This isn't going to stand up to like even some of their other movies. I'm just saying in the context of this movie, it's a breath of fresh air when some Absolutely. laser guns get pulled out. And I totally agree. And usually, uh, usually that stuff doesn't do it for me. But in this one, I was like, thank God. I mean, the whole thing isn't really breaking any new ground. Like if you're a sci-fi fan, you'll recognize Logan's Run, Clonus, yeah. Soylent Green. Blade Runner. Yeah. Blade Runner. They're taking other sci-fi stories and sort of blending them up a little bit and creating something sort of new but it's pretty derivative but at the same time i mean it works in the context of the movie it fits in with the other stories in terms of its themes and everything you can credit the book for that i don't know how close this adheres to whatever the story is in the book it's my understanding it's pretty close i'm sure it's more action in the movie yeah definitely more action uh, a lot more substance in the book but yeah, it's following along there. I will say I uh, it was powerful when you see what actually happens to the what are they are they replicants? That's not the right word. 
Fabricants. Fabricants. They're replicants. You know what's going to happen, but still, like when you see them kill that one and like that she gets put in the machine and the machine's like stripping off their skin. I was like, all right, that's pretty gnarly. It sort of reminds me of the scene in The Matrix where Neo wakes up and you see, oh, oh my God, yeah. it's so horrible. Yeah. You know. Also, this just visually looks different than all the other segments, you know? I mean, this is clearly one of the highlights of the film. Also, the actress, uh, what's her name again? Una Bay. I think she's really good. I think she- I do too. She, I really like her. It's kind of a shame she's not in more of the movie. You know, like, I'm not sure why she isn't in those other segments. I think it's because she can't speak English that well and they can't really use her in every other sequence because it would be sort of distracting. She's in the other one where she looks like Chucky. I know she's in one more. Right. Yes, I acknowledge that. She's in the post-apocalyptic sequence, too. She plays Zachary's original wife who ends up getting killed. And she looks weird in that, too. No, wait, wait, wait. She's in the 70s one, too. She plays the Hispanic woman that's in that warehouse. Oh, my God. That's right. I forgot about that. Yep. And then Hugo Weaving shoots her dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this movie's got a dog death. I forgot about that. That was pretty cool. Bravo. (laughs) That's where Jen would have turned off the movie, for sure. I would say that this segment actually would be pretty pretty solid if it wasn't for the James... You have like two awful, how many uh, Asian makeups do you have in this? You got three because you got, you got. But you're watching them the entire time. It's not just like they show up and you can say, oh, that looks bad. Hugo Weaving shows up too. Yeah, he has a scene when he's like a bad guy. I think if those characters were just, if they were just like white characters and played by those people or they got Korean actors for it. Yeah. This, this whole segment would work. I think this would, this is, is pretty strong. That's what I'm saying. Like it would be fairly solid. And they probably could have gone with getting actual Korean actors. But the yellow face makeup is so bad and so distracting that I think it's it, so distracting. it really lowers this segment to below some of the others. I think that's my main complaint. All I could think about is like how far their eyelids are like actually make it like the actors can't see through their makeup. <laughs> yes. Like their brows don't move. It's so exaggerated. It's not really what Asian people look like. No, no. none of their eyes are actually moving. They can't even perform. It, yeah. They look like Star Trek aliens. They look like Klingons. Yes. It is really shocking that no one said to the mate, someone said, maybe we should fire that makeup person because that's terrible. <laughs> Like maybe just like on the day of shooting, they sh- they kept calling. Are you sure you're gonna be able to do the Asian makeup? He's like, don't worry about it, bro. I got it. I know what Korean people look like. Is it James Darcy who's the uh, the interrogator? Yes. Okay, so his his entire brow looks like it's coming out like a whole half an inch beyond his face. Yes. And yeah, and they clearly can't move their eyebrows because yes. they're so plastered down with makeup. No, but I'm talking about like his entire forehead looks like it's coming off like all the way up to his hairline looks like this this giant prosthetic. It really can't be overstated how bad it is. But we should probably just move on because we have covered that element of it all right i just there's nothing (laughs) that's what this movie is about like captain america (laughs) we could do this all day but i agree rodney unfortunately it mars what should be the best sequence in the movie but it is cool looking i think we all agree on that i mean not the makeup the 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 city (laughs) the city and the special effects neo soul looks cool everything that's made by a computer looks good I like the basic story, too. As derivative as it is, I think it's decent. Sure, sure. All right, well, let's go to the last segment, which takes place in 2321 on the post-apocalyptic island of Hawaii, where they worship Somni now. These 
people who live in this valley, and one of the people that live in this valley is Zachary, played by Tom Hanks, with some nice sort of facial tattoos. And they're this post-apocalyptic society that has some problems with their neighbors because their neighbors are cannibals. And the one of the cannibals is played by Hugh Grant. And he's got like a skull facial tattoo, which is like a cool look, but I'm not sure if it really works totally on Hugh Grant. Uh, I love it. I love Hugh Grant as the cannibal. I think he's awesome. For some reason, that makeup just made me think of uh, 90s bands yeah totally i don't know why it just looked like uh, something that like a, a 90s grunge band would put on for one set no to, to me it looks like something like a rap metal band like twisted would put on okay yeah yeah sorry rodney you're probably a twisted fan i don't mean to make fun of them <laughs> twisted rules <laughs> i know you kids love that twisted they're no bread i acknowledge that <laughs> but so while they're dealing with this other tribe which i don't really understand why the cannibal tribe doesn't just come in and kill all the village all the valley people you act like you've never eaten human flesh before sebastian well they've got a whole source of food right there they should just come in and wipe them out but you got to leave some of them alive so they can have kids so you can have more later then they'd be out of food yeah good point good point i don't I haven't thought through this cannibalism thing clearly but they're also getting visited by these members of an advanced faction in the planet and they're called the prescience and they come in in like their cool spaceship like nuclear vehicles or whatever and one of them is Maronim, who's played by Halle Berry. And she's sort of like helping them out with medicines. And like Tom Hanks has got like a wife and kid and she's coming around and helping them out. But like Tom Hanks is also sort of obsessed with uh, this character, old Georgie, who's sort of like the devil. And, you know, you're not supposed to go and do certain things or go to certain places on the island because old Georgie will get you or influence you or whatever. And Halle Berry has got to go to this uh, observational tower on this mountain to send this signal out into space because her people are also dying of like radiation poisoning and they need to contact off world colonies who they haven't heard from in many, many years. And the only person that can really take them to this mountain is Tom Hanks. And at first he doesn't want to do it, but then his daughter gets sick and she heals his daughter with her magical space pen. And so Tom Hanks agrees to take her up to the mountain. And then we get these scenes of them climbing the mountain. And here's the part of this story that doesn't work for me. Tom Hanks is getting these visions of Georgie. And there's actually a pretty cool scene where on the, they're on the side of the mountain and he's helping Halle Berry climb up the mountain with her advanced rock climbing stuff. Which, I mean, why don't they just have like levitation devices or whatever? I mean, they seem pretty advanced. Do you think they would have come up with something a little more advanced? They're advanced, but they're basically hanging on to what's left of technology. The remnants of high technology. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. So so she doesn't have everything. She's got like the slim pickings of what was once an advanced, like what, what was Neo Soul. Mm -hmm. They just have like the bare bones, gotcha. the prescience do. That makes sense. I didn't catch that even on my third viewing. So they're climbing up the side of this like rock face and Tom Hanks has got her on one end of this rope pulley and he's pulling her up and then Georgie, is walking towards him on the side of the mountain. It's a pretty cool shot of Hugo Weaving. And Hugo Weaving's Georgie, he's got like a green face and he wears like a cool bowler hat and he kind of looks like steampunky, creepy or whatever. I'm thinking more Lollapalooza. 
He's like Lollapalooza devil. He's like Perry Farrell devil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't catch any of your references. That's 270s for yeah. you. Lollapalooza in the height of the 70s. It wasn't, it wasn't my <laughs> yeah. thing. But here's what doesn't work about this. We're supposed to get this feeling that Tom Hanks is going to be influenced by Georgie and he's going to kill Halle Berry when he shouldn't. But it's like, I never buy that that's going to happen at all. I mean, mainly <laughs> because it's Tom Hanks and like she's clearly not a bad person and georgie's like oh she's bad she's gonna use the true true to get you or whatever i should say yeah they all (laughs) they speak in this goofy post-apocalyptic language which is hard to understand at first but you kind of get the rhythm of it eventually i like the future language i like that and i i actually find myself saying ain't that the true true often now right oh yeah but because it keeps cutting to other segments it doesn't allow you to live in that that speech pattern long enough. Yeah. So every time it cuts back to it, you're like, oh, wait, I forgot we're talking like this, right? If the whole movie were like that, I feel like I'd understand them. The other thing is while Hugo weaving as like an invisible green devil man with a bowler hat is cool, it is so out of place compared to everything else in this movie. Why is he there? Why is there an invisible devil man? I don't understand. Troy, is this in the book? Yeah, he's just, you know, he's like a a superstition. But he's but he's there and he's talking to him. In uh, Zachary's mind. Yeah. He's the devil on Zachary's shoulder. I get it. Basically, they this mountain where they're supposed to go to, they're extremely superstitious of it. They think it's the hot spot. They think this mountain is evil. So the closer he gets to it, the more superstitious he gets. And yes... Throughout the story in the book, he is hearing these voices. Yeah, fine. It's in the book, whatever. It's just, it's out of place in the movie. I agree. I I think it actually is kind of silly. Okay, there we go. Thank you. I get what Sebastian's saying. It's like kind of a cool costume for Hugo. Totally cool. Because Sebastian tripped a lot at the Lollapalooza shows. I think I wore a hat like that, too. He thinks that's (laughs) awesome. Takes him back. He loves bowler hats. I think I was dressed pretty close to old Georgie, too, at the time. I kind of hate the character of Georgie, to be honest. I would rather just see a Tom Hanks and some more makeup getting paranoid. No. Rather than having this devil character climbing all over going, she's going to tell you the truth, Drew, as don't listen, it's Georgie's going to come and use your sticker and get her. He's a very <laughs> Stephen King character, if you think about it. Like, yes, he's such a Stephen King character. That would be something that would show up in one of his books, old Georgie. But also, to your point, Sebastian, like he's kind of pointless because you never once believe that Georgie is going to affect these characters at all. Right. Ever. He's there to add this tension that I don't feel actually ever materializes. I'm never like, oh, don't listen to Georgie. Tom Hanks, don't (laughs) listen to him. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, he's not going to listen to him. It's going to be fine. And like they go to this observatory and when they're there, she reinvigorates this technology that then we see Una Bay's character giving her speech. And Halle Berry reveals to Tom Hanks that she wasn't this deity like figure. She was a real person and her life was really sad. And that's when Georgie's really getting in Tom Hanks's ears. She's basically taking the the stuffing out of their deity, so to speak. But she's also saying like, oh, she was an important person. You know, you worship her for this reason. She's telling him the true, true. And so, yeah, they basically go back after they 
uh, restart this signal into space that's going to alert the the humans in space to come back and save the humans on the planet. And then they go back to the village, but the cannibals have attacked the tribe. The Hugh Grant character has killed Tom Hanks's family or killed Tom Hanks's wife, who is also played by Una Bay. Oh, right. And then he just got drunk and just passed out in one of the huts. And Tom Hanks like kind of <laughs> brutally cuts his throat. Yeah. But they don't even fight because the you know, Hugh Grant's just drunk on the ground. That was kind of a letdown. Like, it's cool the way he he just brutally murders him. That's awesome. But it is kind of a letdown that, again, like, here's an opportunity for there to be some, like, action, you know, or whatever. And it's just like, no, he just, he just happens to find him sleeping and kills him. That's kind of true. True, true. Uh, it's true, true. I was going to say that this is uh, another segment where, you know, they, they don't need a lot of these prosthetic uh, makeups except for the Hugo Weaving weaving character and you could have just had Tom Hanks again you could have just had him basically playing a human being uh in just normal Tom Hanks face but the makeup artists they had to put this henna all over mm -hmm. them they just couldn't help it they couldn't help themselves they could not leave these people's faces alone they try to make it turn into a sort of a climactic battle because then another cannibal comes and really starts messing stuff up and Tom Hanks has got to fight him and it looks like Tom Hanks is going to die but then Halle Berry shows up and she gets involved with the fight it turns into a kind of a lameish action climax and at one yeah. point Tom Hanks gets his face cut really bad that so now cool. Tom Hanks has got like a big scar down his face that scar was pretty Good, though. I like the gruesome stitches on Tom Hanks. It's a pretty gnarly scar. Yeah, that looked real. That looked pretty real. I was a little confused because it looked like when they first slashed his head, it was on his cheek. And then his eye was affected somehow. Yeah. Which uh, plays into his his uh, introduction in the movie, yes. which I don't know if you mentioned. But when we he's didn't. telling the, the campfire story in the very first shot of the movie, and he's, he's telling like a, a story of the true, true. And he's an old man. He's like old uh, Zachary. And then he says something about telling you the, the truth. And he looks right at the camera and says, and then we see eye to eye. <laughs> but he says he's got like one eye and one of his eyes is milked over. And that will bookend the end of this, the movie, because after this fight is resolved and Zachary ends up on the ship with the prescience or whatever, I guess we're supposed to feel that some sort of romance has occurred between him and Halle Berry's character, even though he's been <laughs> married this whole time. But she's dead. His wife's dead. It's time to move on. True, true. He went rock climbing with her. He fell in love. It happens. It only takes a day. He did also tried to kill her. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's what love is. <laughs> that's how you know it's real, Troy. <laughs> the end of the movie is we see Zachary now as an old man, as he was in the beginning. And we, could, we see that this story he's been telling has been told on a campfire in front of a bunch of children. And he's telling them the interconnected story of how everything happened via Cloud Atlas. And now they're on some other planet and he's he's Grampy and Halle Berry's Grammy. And she she's like, come on over here, Grampy. Let me warm your bones. And they go into their tent together. And then that's the end of the movie, except we get these sort of love boat like shots at the end where we're seeing the cast and like Tom Hanks as this character and this character and this character and this character. And they go through all the people that played all the different characters. Just in case you missed it, you really get to see who played who. Again, 
the only reason to watch this movie. So I'm glad they do that. That's true. I, I do feel like there was like one in there that was surprising to me. I forget which one it was, but there was someone I was like, oh, I didn't catch that one. Yeah, of course there is. There's a couple that are surprising. I'm getting the sense that neither of you guys thought this was a very good movie. Troy, what do you think of this movie overall? I hate this movie. Okay. Really? You hate it? <laughs> I, hate, I, I hate this movie. Yes. What do you hate about it? It's a mess. It's totally all over the place. It's sloppy the way it's cut together. I feel like it is trying to to like you know we've been talking about this whole time it's trying to have this sort of interconnectedness and it absolutely doesn't work and and then they try to sort of beat you over the head with this theme based on the makeup and the makeup becomes the most distracting too distracting to even concentrate on the story that's why i hate this movie it's got these conceits that that uh you can't get past that's fair rodney what are your feelings on this movie I I think I like it more than Troy, obviously, but I, I feel complicated about it because I really want to like this movie. And there are moments throughout that I like, but I certainly acknowledge it's like a bad movie, you know, like it's ba it's it's bad in that like it's it's a nonsense story. The makeup is distracting. I'm having a hard time seeing past the big swing, right? Like I'm just so impressed by what you tried to do that it's hard for me to actually acknowledge your complete failure. And so I'm giving like half credit, you know, like I'm sitting there the whole time being like, this is on the verge of being something spectacular, but I have to judge like what you got and what you got is like, it literally is the definition of too many cooks. There's literally two different directors making two different halves of the movie. Even each of those directors, their, their segments are totally different. Right. Uh, and you kind of just end up with a weird stew. You're like, it's like a stew with ice cream in it. And I'm all over the map here with my analogy. Do I like it? I like it a little bit. I guess that's the way to put it. I like it a little bit. I definitely have come around to liking it more than I initially did. Initially, I felt pretty much the same as Troy, where I kind of hated it because I felt like it was pretentious, which is one of the things that bugs me most. But you love The Wolfman. That's a movie that's really trying to, <laughs> to be a big message movie. <laughs> I got to say this about the movie. It tries to hit you emotionally, and I feel that it fails. It does not work on me emotionally, even the third time the only story that kind of works on me like i said is the frobisher story the rest of it i don't feel really anything for the characters i'm not really feeling emotionally invested in their stories necessarily i don't dislike the stories like taken individually in terms of being an anthology movie if you if you take away the concepts of cutting it all together the way they did and if you take away the distracting makeup i feel like it's a pretty decent anthology story and i mean that can be credited to the book i guess more than the movie but the things they're trying to do i think could have worked had they not edited it the way they did and had they not tried to do this ridiculous makeup thing like it could have maybe worked but i definitely do get more out of it the more I've seen it. I know you're going to make fun of me, uh, Rodney, but I mean, this is a movie that if you watch it a few times, you're going to get more out of it because it's so dense <laughs> and so complicated. <laughs> There's more here to unpack, let's just say. It sounds like Troy's the one who's going to disagree with you. No, I, I, I'll i say, yeah, if you watch this, if you watch this movie a handful more times, you will unpack a lot of stuff. Yes, there's there's stuff in there. What I'm getting at ultimately is not so much that I like this movie because I don't really like this movie, 
but I can understand why some people do. I think you said the right word, which is pretentious. And that's kind of why I hate it is because when I stated in the beginning, when Lana gave this speech about how we're, you know, our lives are not our own, that, that whole thing, which was really touching. And then I saw the movie, which they say in the movie, like three times they give that speech, I think. What I expected to be kind of a soft, subtle, moving story about people's inner characters was overbloated and loud and sloppy and pretentious. Oh, it's it's super pretentious. I completely agree. I don't know who the person is who would watch this movie more than once. I just don't know who that is. <laughs> oh, they're out there. They're out there. How many times have you seen it, Sebastian? Three, but I only watched it a third time because we're doing it for the podcast. You chose to do it twice. On your own. Why did why did you watch it the second time? Because I just didn't like it the first time. And then I'd heard all these people say, oh, Cloud Atlas is amazing. You just don't get it, man. And so I wanted to watch it again and see if they were right. I do that with all the Wachowski movies. They're the MVPs of tentpole traumas. That's fair. I just don't buy that, like, watching it more. Like, yeah, you might pick up on a few things. You might be like, you might... you. Maybe you might miss that the journal was under the piano and you'll go, oh, I get that or whatever. But like, it's not like a movie where like the second viewing makes you understand it. It's not It's not like there's secrets to unfold like the sixth sense and a second viewing is different. You watch it a second time. It's still just a muddled mess of a bunch of stories that have almost nothing to do with each other. I guess the one thing is you might go, oh, they all had a star-shaped tattoo. I agree with you, Rodney. I think whatever David Mitchell's intention was with the subtext, that's never going to come across in this movie, no matter how many times you watch it. Ten years ago, or I guess nine years ago, when this came out and I saw it, I remember thinking, I need to read the book. I need to read the book, and maybe that will help me understand the film. And then all this time went by, and I never read the book. And I'll say it again now. Maybe I need to read the book, and I'll check in nine years from now and <laughs> see if I ever do it. It definitely sounds like the book is the more successful take on this, for sure. Can I tell you what I think would make this movie perfect? If at the very end, after Tom Hanks finishes his storytelling to the kids, and he's like, and that's the true true. If one of the kids was like, but wait, why did, what's it have to do with the old guy running away from the, the old folks home? And he goes, don't you get it? He's, he, he makes a movie about his life and he starts arguing with the kids about how it all makes sense. And they're like, well, why, what's it have to do with the replicants? He's like, I used to worship her. <laughs> And then Halle Berry comes out. She goes, all right, honey, are you telling the nonsense story again? He's like, it's not nonsense. <laughs> and then one of the kids goes, where's your green friend now? <laughs> Dude, that would make it my favorite film of all time. If only you had been there to give notes. <laughs> all right. Well, the budget for this was $150 million. And the crazy thing about this is this wasn't a studio's money. This was in an independent movie. This is the what? most expensive indie movie ever made. They got all this money from all these different sources. There was no studio behind it. Would you say the budget was? $150 million. They like go fund me this movie? More or less. Yes. They got investors. Oh my God. They got that many investors. And Tom Hanks was a big champion of it. Tom Hanks was like 
one of the main reasons why they were able to get so much money. And at one point, they almost lost their funding. And Tom Hanks was like, he made the money come back by just saying like, well, I'm getting on a plane and going to the location. So they were like, well, Tom Hanks is going to show up tomorrow and be here. So <laughs> we better just keep making the movie, I guess. That's how passionate he felt about it. I'd like to try to imagine him like there by himself waiting. And he's he's playing Knuckle Sandwich, <laughs> just like going over and over his lines again. Oi. Are we making a movie or are we not making a movie? <laughs> Listen, this is Thorpe Banks, and you're going to give me $150 million. So in the U.S., this made a paltry $27 million, and worldwide, it only made $106 million. Huge loss, but I guess it's good that no studio had to lose that money. Why is that a good thing? You'd rather the independent film financiers lose their money than the big studios? I funded Cloud Atlas and all I got was this lousy t-shirt <laughs> of Tom Hanks. That's good. I kind of want that as a, like a present. That'd be great. I know. The only reason why I'm saying maybe that's good is because then Warner Brothers isn't mad at the Wachowskis. I guess I, Warner Brothers keeps giving them money. They, they keep losing all this money and Warner yeah. Brothers just keeps giving it to them. So I don't know what they did to get this never ending blank check. But this was just the one movie that Warner brothers wasn't going to pony up for. They're like, no, we'll give you money for Jupiter ascending, but we won't give you money for cloud Atlas. This is after speed racer, which was a huge bomb. Right. But is that why Warner brothers wouldn't give them money? Is it because of speed racer? No, I think they just didn't believe in this project. I think they okay. just thought it was too unwieldy. They passed on it, but they did pick up the distribution. So, yeah. And then after this, they let them make Jupiter Sending, and then they're letting Lana make Matrix Resurrections. So, but that's Matrix, though, and they know they're going to have an audience for Matrix. This is true. Yeah. Now, why do you guys think this movie failed? <laughs> <laughs> you always ask that question, and this is my least favorite part of the show because I don't know. <laughs> But I think, one, the title, Cloud Atlas, is terrible. Like, it, in no way does it convey any... Even after watching the movie twice, I don't really... It's just like the name of a fucking song that plays in one part of the movie. It, it doesn't connect anything. It doesn't mean anything. I think that's one. I think it being three hours is a big no-no for a lot of people. They're just like, I don't want to go see a three-hour movie. A movie based on a book that's, you know, kind of a highbrow book that's more of a drama... It doesn't seem like a Wachowski movie. That should have been an IFC or, you know, and this is before A24, but it seems like something that should have been a, a much lower budget with, a, you know, a few A-list actors in it. Action directors doing it just was a weird mix. That's why I think it failed. It doesn't seem like the Wachowski audiences wanted to go to this, and it doesn't seem like the literary audiences wanted to go see their beloved adaptation either. By these people they were going for something that was going to win awards and stuff i mean it was released near you know the end of the year so they were hoping for some oscar buzz you know it's got tom hanks in it you know they were thinking maybe there, there'd be some awards to be had he's only in good movies <laughs> it's true it's true it just didn't work it's too complex it's too tonally unbalanced i think you're right uh, Rodney, I think it was really hard to market. You know, it's got a weird name. What does it mean? Who knows? Who cares? I just don't understand why anybody thought this would make any money. I think it just, it's clearly going to bomb. You can see it all over the movie. Let me tell you what is the smaller budget, way better version of this. Have you seen the Red Violin? I have, yeah. 
Yeah. Dude, I love the red violin. That movie, that's what this movie is. That's what I was just kind of describing as, as something that is more of a small budget, smaller budget. Yeah, that's you're right. Red violin is exactly what this should have been. Yeah, it's like, Given Red Valiant, it doesn't jumble all the stories into one big stew. You do tell them in order, but you're following the story of the Red Violin. So it all makes sense as you're watching it, right? And if they had just done that, if they had just followed the story of the Cloud Atlas or whatever, if you followed this one song throughout the yeah. movie, it would make more sense, yeah. right? I'm trying to remember the tone of, of Red Violin. Did it? It's a drama. All the segments were a drama, right? Each each story. Yeah, it was just it's like drama with a little bit of mystery mixed yeah. in. Depends how much you want to blame on opening weekend, I think, right? You know, like people went and saw it and the people immediately came home and were like, bro, <laughs> definitely don't go see this. I don't think anybody <laughs> went and saw it. I was there, but again I guess you guys went. I yeah. I was there. I was gonna be there no matter what. <laughs> There's just certain directors that I'm like always going to be there. When you saw it, did you come back and were like, oh, that was terrible to whoever asked you? No, I mean look, I'm gonna I got I was really high for this one, right? And I remember the whole time thinking, do I like this? I don't like if you're high and you're not enjoying the movie, something's off, right? And I was just sitting there like, I don't this is as weird as I think I was expecting, but I did not expect like the weird future language or a green devil man. But even sitting there in the theater, I can remember being like, this is a mess. And like, I'm enjoying myself because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here at the theater. But my looking at the makeup. Yeah. Trying to figure out who's playing who. But like, I remember coming home and my wife, but at the time, my girlfriend was like, what, how was it? And I was like, you should never watch it. Like, <laughs> little did she know that nine years later, she would watch it. <laughs> Just watch it for Tom Hanks playing this Cockney uh, gangster Brit. Totally worth it. It's one of those things where, like, I, it's not a so bad it's good type movie. No. But it has, like, moments that are so bad they're good, right? Man, I don't know. Like, if, I don't know who's listening to the show who hasn't seen this movie and is on the fence. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, odds are you're not going to like this movie. But it is kind of unlike anything you've seen before. I will say that. Like I said, that's what I'm giving it like a, like a, like a gold sticker for. Is like, hey, you gave me something I've never seen before. Thank you. I think if you have any curiosity and you haven't seen it, it's worth watching. If it seems like the kind of thing you might enjoy, I say give it a try. My wife's opinion doesn't count because she's not on the show. But she did say that it was better than she thought it was going to be. But she, uh, she said all the things we said. It's a tonal mess. She was like, it felt like there were moments that were approaching some kind of greatness and then it just whiffed it, you know? Yeah. And the very fact that she acknowledged that it was better than she thought it would be goes for something. And I, I do applaud that. I think that's the true, true right there. That's the true, true. Troy, Troy, do you have anything else to say? How did we miss that? <laughs> that was right there the whole time. Oh. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to go compose my sextet and get the true, true from old Georgie and drink some soap made from cute Korean fabricants. All right. Oh, ain't that the Troy, Troy? <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. 
Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. Thank you.